Good morning, all you coffee drinkers. You are a consumer of that water used to make your coffee. Is there a difference between consumption of water and use of water? We'll find out. This is Tommy Ray. Welcome to episode two of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Keep listening. In the previous episode, we provided a simplified explanation of how water rights got started, what priorities mean, and how they are administered. There's lots more. We'll talk about mutual ditches, municipal water, water wars, your water tap, clean water, dirty water, the cost of water, transfer of water, and many more things. Interested? Hang around. You learn a little almost every time you do anything. If you're not formally trained or educated in water, as I wasn't, to learn I had to ask a lot of questions every time I met with water engineers, investors in water, farmers, utilities, etc. They all have different interests and a different focus. But the one thing they all want, more water. Where's it going to come from? Depends on who you ask. I'll give you my ideas. I'll tell lots of stories. If I can say something nice about the cast of characters I've learned from, I'll use real names. They deserve the credit. But I've been burned by other not-so-savory people. And one was so unsavory that I ended up suing him. I'll never do that again, even if I'm sure I'll win. I will avoid lawsuits at all costs. Way too much negative energy goes into that. Trust me on that one. But bad guys may get theirs because their reputations will precede them. Life is too short, and at my age getting shorter, to work with people you don't like. In my experience, projects only have about a 2% chance of going forward. Even if you have the best idea in the world, it's hard, really hard, to get others to see what you see. Trust me, don't work with people you don't like or those that have stinky reputations. Before we delve deeper, background information on me will help you understand why I know some things about water, but more importantly, you'll understand that there's much more that I don't know. I take comfort knowing that water engineers don't know how to finance water projects. Water attorneys don't aggregate water by negotiating with farmers in the field. Water utilities usually don't know how to acquire water and be assured it will be delivered to their treatment plants. The point is that no one can know everything. Through this podcast series, you'll get an overall picture of water, demand, uses, costs, battles, misconceptions, etc. that I've been exposed to. I hope you find them intriguing. This is not a text nor a lecture on water rights. Texts and lectures present information in a straight line to a logical conclusion. As a result, many are uninteresting at best and boring at worst. Most books and lectures on water or water rights show little connection between water and living day to day. This podcast series will wander along the road of life, my life, and where it intersected with water. I'll try to be true to dates and facts as I know them. Some may be a little off, 
but will provide an entertaining picture of the complexities of water to keep your interest. I want you to come away with a better idea of how water works. Grab a little water knowledge each day until drop by drop, you understand more and more about water use, transactions, and why there are still water wars. If I say something that is confusing or just plain wrong, ask questions. I'll get you an answer. I welcome feedback. Probably some experts in different areas of water are listening. Experts can improve this podcast series. I also hope to interview some of these experts and have them educate us further. Don't hesitate to email me at Tommy. That's Tommy at nowater.com, K-N-O-W-water.com. A bit of my history will help you follow this path we're on together. Raised in a small southwest Texas town where there ain't no surface streams, all the water must be pumped from the ground. Lots of windmills to water the cattle and sheep that range the desolate landscape. No irrigation. Lots of dry, rocky, sun-baked hills with scrub oak trees scattered among the rocks. Great places for kids to roam, build rock forts, and drink amoeba-filled water from stock water troughs. Just brush the scum off the top and take a big drink of cool water. You can't tell me that God doesn't protect little kids. Shoot, we should have died the next day. What an introduction to raw water. My next eye-opener for water was the three college summers I worked in Glacier National Park, driving a 16-passenger 1930 convertible bus. What a contrast. Perfectly clear, clean water cascading down the mountains as glorious waterfalls. I couldn't take enough pictures of water. I never knew water to be such a thing of beauty. From Glacier back to Texas, where I used the chemical engineering degrees from the University of Texas to get jobs with consulting firms. I also worked a couple of years for the state, helping set up its air pollution control agency in the early 70s. That gave me an appreciation of the function of regulatory agencies. It also pushed me into environmental slash permitting consulting. Moved to Denver in 1977 with an environmental consulting firm. My principal job was to help coal mining companies file complete and accurate permit applications. More experience with understanding the role of government. Unfortunately, I didn't like my boss in Denver, and I don't think he liked me. Really, I don't think he liked anyone. Everyone at that firm was looking for an exit. My exit was to try going it alone. This was 1979. Luckily, I had a couple of good clients that kept me busy and allowed me to keep a roof over the head of our small family. Let me tell you, when you are an independent with small children, You'll do anything that is legal and ethical. Want me to wash your car? No problem. During my first year as an independent consultant, I met a guy who was looking for water and had been told that some mines might have excess water. He was interested in me because of my mining connections. He called himself a water broker. What the heck is that? Maybe that was something I could learn and grow my one-man consulting firm. 
So I began investigating and started asking questions about water. I didn't learn much about water from this water broker, but I learned a lot about how some people simply are not honest, basically cheaters. There are lots of honest, decent people in the water business and a few crooks. I'll share names of the honest people. You want to know who they are, but I'll make up names for the bad guys because I don't want to get sued. The first bad guy's name was Wendell Dietz. He wanted to quote, mine my contacts in the mining industry. He told me that we would work together on water sales from mines and split the commission. Sounded pretty good. I started making introductions and trying to learn about water brokering. I knew nothing. I think I was 33 at the time. Well, old Wendell wanted to bring his son into the project. I could understand him wanting to work with his son, but I questioned how that would impact our 50-50 split agreement. Oh, no, he said. Split doesn't mean 50-50, it means 90-10. Whoa, are there really these kinds of people in the world? Culeros. But I was interested in water broking. I continued to ask questions of companies I knew that ever needed water or used water or wanted to buy water. I learned that most water purchases were passive transactions where water attorneys or water engineers knew of water rights that might be on the market and told their clients about them. These professionals simply represented their clients and would keep their eyes open for their clients. We'll talk later about the functions of each of these professionals, but I learned there were a handful of water brokers. They actively tried to put buyer and seller together. This meant they sought out sources of water and tried to find people that needed water. I didn't know a dang thing about water. I did know that Denver and the suburbs were growing. During the 1980s, in order for a home builder to get water service from a city, he had to go out on the open market, find water rights that the city could use in its systems, buy them, and dedicate those rights to the city. The city would then allow the developer to buy a block of potable water taps so that he could have water service for homes that that developer intended to build. A water tap is the connection to the city's potable water system. A home builder also has to buy other services to complete a home, but water is the first issue he has to solve. Cities' raw water supplies are always short. This was, is a way for cities to balance raw water supplies with demands from home builders. I didn't know how to locate water but I knew I could start calling developers to learn if they needed water and how much. I could then work with a water brokerage firm that knew to find water. So, on to my second water broker. I learned that in order to legally get a commission from a water sale, you must be a licensed real estate broker. Some aspects of water rights are treated as real property. Usually when sold, a deed is completed along with a stock certificate from the ditch company. I didn't really understand why a broker's license was required, but I knew I could not get paid unless I was licensed. 
I took the coursework, passed the test, and obtained a real estate salesman's license from the Colorado Real Estate Commission. At that time, you first had to be registered as a salesman and hang your license under a licensed real estate broker. After two years, you could then get a full broker's license, work on your own without guidance from a registered broker. After getting my salesman's license, I began looking for a water broker to work with, as they say, hang my license with his company. I came across one who seemed to do a lot of work. I convinced him that I could bring customers to the table. I spent time with this water broker asking a lot of questions, but mostly I started calling land developers and home builders. What was my working relationship with this water broker? Similar deal with Wendell Dietz, but clearly defined 50-50 split. I would find a customer and this broker, I'll call him Phil McElway, would find the water. Should work great. I worked it hard. I bet I called 100 developers, introduced myself as a water broker, and learned if they needed water. Finally, I found a company that needed roughly a million dollars worth of water. My broker found the first $200,000 of water and we were set to close. He then announced me that he was changing his policy and that he would only pay me 25% of the commission. This guy was such a crook that he went around me and sold them the other $800,000 of water rights and didn't pay me anything. How's that for a kick in the teeth? I was so angry that I wanted to shoot him. The next best thing was to sue him. After months of deposition and negativity galore, we settled out of court. During depositions, when his attorney was not asking questions, he glared at me the whole time. I could only laugh in his face. He was trying to physically intimidate me. Wish I could remember McElway's attorney's name. I'd sure give it to you. I should have known McElway would have treated me dirty. Previously, when riding in the car with McElway, he told me the real way to make money in the water brokering business was to set up a straw company. A water broker is supposed to know the value of water that he's trying to list. He can legally be held to be an expert. Sellers depend on his honesty to tell the sellers the value of their water. But good old Phil would list their water at a price he knew was below market, sell it to the straw company, and then turn around and sell from the straw company to a buyer at a much higher price. Wow, I was blown away. This is the most unethical thing a broker can do. Just imagine listing a piece of water for, say, $100,000, maybe from some poor farmer widow, selling it to the straw company while pocketing the 6% commission. He would then turn around and sell it to a buyer for $200,000. I almost gagged, but said nothing. I had no proof other than what he told me. Hard to believe there are those kinds of people out there. After old Phil, and he was probably 65 at the time, I understand he later moved to California and died. After he did me dirty, 
I wondered if there were any honest people in the water business out there. Well, yes, there are. Lots of them. With experience, you learn who to stay away from. The bad actors' reputations usually precede them. When I learn of a water deal that someone with a bad reputation is involved with, I will walk away. I don't care how much money can be made. Of course, when starting out, you don't know who's bad and who's good. You get snake bit, but you learn. If you are thinking about starting a company or a project, please know that the likelihood of any new project going forward is small. Walk if you smell something bad. Walk if you don't like your smile. If you have a bad feeling, don't walk, run. It's just not worth it. And it probably would have not gone forward anyway. It's hard to walk when you need the money, but find others to work with. The first honest person I met in the water business is Greg Campbell, his real name, good guy. While I was working with McElway, I arranged meetings with the Denver Water Department known to everyone simply as Denver Water, to see if they were looking to buy water. I met Greg. Greg was maybe a year or two older than me. He and I hit it off and became friends. Greg spent a lot of time with me explaining the water rights system in Colorado. Greg had been with the Denver Water Department for 14 years in charge of water rights acquisitions, protection, and development. This guy knew what he was talking about and he was open and friendly and honest. He knew and despised Phil McElway. By the way, Greg is still around and doing business as HydroSource. Greg must have been impressed that I was struggling like the Dickens to stay alive. And I learned that he too wished he could struggle and maybe go under at any time. No, it wasn't quite like that. Greg was, is smart. We later formed a water development firm together. We'll talk about our firm, Kiowa Resources, later. Greg knew that I didn't know enough about water to locate farmers that might want to sell their water, nor did I have enough experience to evaluate one water right over another. But why is this important? Okay, this is where it gets murky. Why do you need to buy water from farmers? If cities need water, can't they create their own water rights? Why not just create another diversion in the river and take the water? It turns out that every drop of water in our wonderful state of Colorado has already been claimed. The preferred option in the 70s and the 80s was to build new reservoirs to catch the spring runoff. Once snow starts melting in April and May, it comes rushing down the streams in a hurry and right on downstream out of our state. Gee, let's catch as much of that spring runoff as possible and keep it for ourselves. Seems like the sensible thing to do, right? Maybe not. In the early 1970s, the Denver Water Department proposed building a new dam. Denver Water had the experience, knowledge, and staff to design and build new reservoirs. The suburbs simply rode on Denver's coattails. The new proposed reservoir was called Two Forks and had massive support from most Denver metropolitan suburbs. Two Forks would have 
been constructed in Cheeseman Valley in the mountains where the North Fork and South Fork came together to form the South Platte River upstream of Denver. It would have impounded 1 million acre-feet of water and guaranteed a firm delivery of over 100,000 acre-feet annually. That's a lot of water. Together, Denver Water and the suburbs spent over 40 million on environmental studies for the massive 539-foot-tall dam. In 1990, the Environmental Protection Agency vetoed two forks saying it was a violation of the Clean Water Act, dead in its tracks. Denver Water was no longer the agency that the suburbs could depend on for future water supplies. Denver pivoted from a water developer to a protector of its existing water portfolio. The suburbs were now on their own for new sources of water. Panic City. Now what? The scramble for new water sources was on and still is. Okay, so if a city or an industry or other large water user needs to create a water supply for itself and all water rights are taken, what can they do? Well, shucks, they can buy existing water rights from others and change them from their present use to another use. All it takes is money and time, a lot of each. This reallocation process starts with due diligence. A water engineer will need to evaluate how much water an existing water rights owner has to sell. The existing owner knows how much water he is entitled to, but usually has little knowledge as to how much of his water can make it through reallocation. Water engineers have to be engaged to evaluate the existing right. Water attorneys will analyze how difficult it will be to go through water court and appease any objectors. And there will be objectors because other users fear any change of use may result in more water being moved than consumed we still have to talk about consumptive use. Uh, that'll come soon. If more water is moved than was consumed, objectors will be left with less water than they previously had. Today, reallocation is pretty much the only way for a city or an industrial project to get water. Enter the water market and buy water from an existing user. And who has all the water? Farmers. Farmers use 85% of the water in the state, and farming accounts for about 10% of the state's economy. What? How can that be? Why is such a disproportionate share of such a valuable resource being used in ag? Think about that. If cities' industries negotiate to buy, not take, just 15% of that water, it would double the city's water supply while still leaving the farmers with 70% of the water used in the state. Farmers want an active water market. 
I believe that buying water from farmers should be encouraged, not discouraged. They can then make the decision when and if they want to sell. I will take lots of heat for such a suggestion. Moving water from the farms is a political hot potato. As I have aged and seen the stress and overly complicated hoops to jump through, I have formed opinions on water. My stance on some of these issues will not garner me many votes when I run for governor. That's okay. Running for governor is one of those very low probability things that I'm walking away from. On the whole, the water rights system works and has served us well for 150 years. But some things don't make common sense. We'll cover some of those archaic laws in the next episode. This is a great place to stop this episode. Next time, we'll begin with my attempt to finance slash carry out a water project to move water into demand areas. What farmers want and that city market. Of course, it has to do with money. Lots of money. We'll also begin the conversation on politics and misguided perception. It gets very interested. Stay tuned and remember you can reach me at Tommy at nowater, K-N-O-W-Water.com. Thanks for listening. We'll end this episode with where we begin. The sound of a gentle mountain stream 